right. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, good morning. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here at Mercy Hill. It's great to see you here in person. Uh, thank you so much if you're joining us online. We know a lot of you guys are still out for fall break uh, and that sort of thing. And so we're really glad that you're joining us online as well. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to Mark chapter 5. We're continuing our series through the book of Mark called Jesus the True King. So we'll be today in Mark chapter 5. Please feel free and use your phone or a tablet if you've got a print copy of the Bible. Like, that's great. If you don't have a Bible and you would like a Bible to either follow along or to take home with you, uh, there's some of these two tables in the back in the room, and you can grab one of those as well. Um, I, I don't know if you've had the pleasure of taking a trip to the emergency room anytime lately, uh, but the emergency room is usually an indication that you are not having a great day, right? And so most trips to the emergency room uh, are not because you're just really interested in the inner workings of a hospital. Most of them are born out of some sort of pain or worry or experience or medical condition, and you feel like you need some help, and you either need it now or you need it at 3 a.m., and there's no other options, right? So what happens often in the emergency room is it can be a blessing. Right? If you're in the middle of an emergency, you go to the emergency room, you get medical care quickly. However, if you have uh, to go to the emergency room at 3 a.m. just because there's no other options, you go through this thing in the emergency room called triage. Anybody ever been to triage? Where they actually do a quick diagnosis of what your condition might be. Now, the good news about triage is if you're having a heart attack, you get like immediate care. But the bad news is if maybe you've just got like a condition that's incredibly maybe painful or a condition that is not quite an emergency, then you just get sent back into the waiting room, possibly with a blanket, right? And I've, you hear horror stories all the time, people sitting in the emergency room for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours, never receiving any sort of care. Why? Because your situation was just deemed to not be as big of an emergency as someone else's situation. Now, that's what makes it work. It's also what's incredibly infuriating about, I would say, 78% of emergency room situations, right? Most every time I've been to an emergency room, I've just been sitting in the waiting room waiting and waiting and waiting. What we're going to see here in our passage in Mark chapter 5 is Jesus does triage, Jesus has to, in Mark chapter 5, make decisions about who and what is going to receive his attention. And in making those decisions, he actually does it in a way that we would all scream at. Nonsensical, irrational seemingly to us. And so let's see how Jesus triages a series of situations in Mark chapter 5. We're going to pick up in verse 21. Now some of you who are very astute were like, hey man, you just skipped the whole story, and I know that story. It's about a guy possessed by a demon, and it's crazy. Why did you skip that, right? Let me just say, we're addressing that on the podcast called Expanding the True King that we've been doing in addition to our study on Sunday morning. And so if you want to check it out, uh, I interview my friend David Black about this story, and I just ask him one question. What the heck is going on in that story? And Dave explains it. So we didn't skip it. Just address it on the podcast. All right, you ready? Let's pray together as we look at Mark chapter 5, verse 21. Our Father, this morning, uh, could you show us what is true in your word, and could we respond by believing the truth? Amen. Verse 21. 
And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be, uh, so she may be made well and live And he, that's Jesus, went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. So this is scene number one in these series of scenes, three scenes we're going to see in this text. Here's what happens. A guy named Jairus comes to Jesus after he has crossed over the sea. Now this is in sequential order from what we talked about last week, Jesus calming the storm. So let me just catch you up on the disciples' past couple of days. They were at the side of the sea, this listening to Jesus teach. Jesus says, let's go across the other side. They go across the other side. They experience this incredible storm. Jesus calms the storm. They get to the other side. They have this other kind of crazy, insane experience. Then Jesus says, let's go back to the other side. Now, if I'm one of the disciples, I'm like, nah, bro. No, every time we cross over this sea, something insane happens. I'm not getting in a boat with you ever again. But they agree They go back now. They're back on the other side. When they get to the other side, a guy named Jairus meets them. Jairus is a ruler in the synagogue. A ruler in the synagogue would have been just a layperson, not a trained necessarily pastor or teacher, but a layperson who is in charge of organizing the the day-to-day operations of the synagogue and the teaching ministry of the synagogue. So that would be like for us, Mitchell and Bo, two of our elders here, right? They don't serve on staff here. They've got Real jobs that they work every day, they got families they take care of, and then out of a little bit of their extra time, they give some leadership to our church for the organization and teaching and all that happens, all right? So that's who Jairus is. So he would have been in his community very well respected, probably pretty well known. He would have been a leader that everyone else has recognized as a leader and put in this position of authority and oversight over his local synagogue. Now, Also, most of these rulers of the synagogues were Pharisees. And so you remember, there's some conflict going on in the story between Pharisees and Jesus. So here's this guy, Jairus, who is a well-respected leader. And what we find him doing is pushing his way through this crowd that's around Jesus, coming to Jesus and falling at his feet. He falls at his feet with this very urgent request, an emergency situation. He says, "My, my daughter is on the verge of death. Would you please come? Because if you could get to my house, I think if you could lay your hands on her, she could be made well. And Jesus agrees. And so this scene one ends with Jesus following Jairus to his house to heal his daughter who's on the verge of death, and the entire crowd is following with them. Now the crowd is important, because the crowd is a key player in scene number two. So here's scene number two. We'll pick up in uh, verse 25. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, 
and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? Who touched my clothes? And the disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing in around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Verse 34, he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Be healed of your disease. So in the second scene, we meet a new character, this woman who has an issue of blood. This is a medical condition where something is wrong inside of her that causes a bleeding condition uh, constantly in her life. This is very private, uh, a very intimate sort of medical condition, one that would be embarrassing for anyone, and it is also embarrassing for this woman. She has seen doctor after doctor with no sort of remedy. She spent all of her money and Mark tells us that even at the end of spending all of her money and seeing all these physicians, instead of being anywhere close to being better, she's actually gotten worse. And so there's been this 12 years of a downward spiral where her condition continues to get worse. Now this woman has heard about Jesus. She's heard about the healings that he's done in her community. And so when she hears that he's back on their side of the sea, she comes to receive a healing from Jesus. She is desperate. It's been 12 years. And so she comes seeking after Jesus, but there's a problem. The problem is her condition makes her perpetually, ceremonially unclean, which means she hasn't been to the synagogue to worship in this entire 12 years. She's been barred from coming in to worship. Not only that, but it means every time she's in a crowd of people, she has to announce her presence in order that other people could step back from her so that she wouldn't accidentally touch them and make them unclean ceremonially as well. That would prevent them from going to worship that week. And not only that, but it's a big no-no for someone who's ceremonially unclean to touch a rabbi, especially one whose reputation is like Jesus' reputation. And so because of this problem, she thinks, I can't touch Jesus and him know who I am. I can't be in the crowd and publicly identify myself. Everyone, including Jesus, is going to scatter. This is going to be embarrassing. And so she devises a plan, which is she's going to not identify herself, sneak up from behind Jesus, reach out, just touch the hem of his garment, and then she believes if she does this, she will be healed, and she'll be able to guard this very private situation. She won't have to publicly embarrass herself in front of all of these people. And so she does, and the plan works. And she can feel somehow inside of herself that she is immediately healed. But there's a second problem. Jesus feels it too. And Jesus knows that something has happened where he has healed this woman, and he asks her then to do what would have completely mortified her to publicly identify herself, the very thing that she's wanted to avoid in this entire interaction. Now, the disciples are put out with the whole thing. Why? Well, because Jesus is in the middle of triaging a situation and he's doing it all wrong, right? And the disciples are like, uh, hey, Jesus, listen, we know you're in charge and all that, um, 
But how in the world could we possibly find out the one person who touched you in the middle of this great, huge crowd of people? Not only that, but maybe you forgot we got an emergency situation. We need to get to Jarius's house. His daughter is going to die. Now, could you imagine the disciples confronting Jesus and Jesus persisting? Who touched me? Now, Jarius is in the middle of all of this, right? What is going on with him? Can you imagine the anxiety welling up inside of him as he realizes that Jesus seems to care more about this mystery woman who possibly touched his garment than he does about his daughter in this complete emergency situation? So but Jesus slows down, ask continually. And finally, we see in the passage, the woman does what would have been very difficult for her to do. So she comes forward to Jesus, trembling and with great fear, and not only identifies herself, but then in front of all of these people, tells the entire story, which would have included her condition. And so she has to out herself in front of all of these people. And then Jesus says these really powerful words to her in verse 36. Daughter, it's your faith that made you well. When you devised this plan and when you said, if I just reached out and touched his garment, I will be healed, that faith, that sort of trust is what I responded to, not the actual physical touch. So you go in peace and be healed. Now, that's the end of scene two, and then we get to scene three, because we still have Jarius and his daughter. So we pick up then. In uh, verse 35, while he was still speaking, that's Jesus, while he's still speaking to the woman, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead, why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. If this was COVID time, you know, that would have been like t-shirts, right? Do not fear, only believe. We'll talk about that in a little bit later. Okay. And he allowed no one to follow him except for Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion of people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. Verse 40, and they laughed at him. And he put them outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in to where the child was. And taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he charged them to tell no one, uh, that, that no one should know about this, and told them to give her something to eat. So scene number three while Jesus is addressing the woman who he has just healed, uh, a group of people from Jairus' house come up and say, hey, there's no need for you to trouble Jesus anymore. Unfortunately, your daughter has passed the way she's died. And Jesus, do you notice this, interrupts that conversation. He's having another conversation, and then he goes, oh, wait, hold on. Hey, 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 no, 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 no. That's not what's going on here. Here's what I need you to do, Jairus. I want you to not fear the worst in this situation. Instead, only believe. 
And then Jesus dismisses the crowd, which is interesting, right? He's allowed the crowd to go with him this entire time, and then he dismisses them. Why? He didn't need them anymore. He needed them as the cover for the woman to give her confidence to come before him. Now he doesn't need them. And so he sends them away. And Jairus and Jesus and three of Jesus' disciples go to Jairus' house. Now when they arrive, they're already people mourning. More than likely, these are professional mourners, which sounds crazy to us. But in Jesus' day, first century Jewish culture, you would often pay people to come to your house and cry when somebody passed away. And so as Jesus is walking through this crowd of mourners, he says, hey, I don't know what you guys are crying about. She's not dead. She's just asleep. And everyone laughs. Now, this is a common reaction. It doesn't matter what culture or what century you live in. When you ask someone to believe what is impossible, they laugh at you. And so these men and women laugh at Jesus. And then he takes just the parents and his three disciples, and they go up to this little girl's room. And in Aramaic... He says, Talitha kumi, little girl arise. Now, it's interesting here that Mark keeps the Aramaic. Why does he do that? Well, remember what Mark is. Mark is a written record of Peter's eyewitness account. This is evidence that Peter was in the room. And so every time Peter has recounted this particular story to Mark, what has he said? He said exactly what Jesus said, which is Aramaic. And so Mark has just written down the story just like Peter told it. There was something about those words that just stuck into Peter's mind. So then Mark translates it for us. Little girl, arise. Right? Almost like he's saying, hey, you've napped long enough. Let's get up. And this girl who's 12 wakes up and begins to walk around like she was actually asleep. Now, This ends an incredible story, but the end of the story, the end of scene three, just leaves me with a big question. Why? Like, why does this story unfold this way? Why does it seem like Jesus slows down when he needs to speed up? Why does it seem like Jesus takes time with one person when the person who really needs his time is on the verge of death? Why does this story unfold this way? And why is Mark so particular in making sure that we get it in the exact chronological order? I think because Mark is trying to show us something and Jesus is trying to teach the people there something and it's something really important that we often miss. That Jesus does triage on the basis of the condition of our hearts, not our outward circumstances. See, Jesus is making determinations about what is important and what's not important, what is an emergency and what's not an emergency, based on a different set of conditions than you and me. He is seeing into the very hearts of these two characters. And he is asking of them what they need at the very heart of who they are, even while everybody around him, even his own disciples are like, bro, you are crazy. This is malpractice. You are making insane decisions. And we see this clearly. He just slows down. He wants to know who this woman is. He wants to know her story in the middle of an emergency situation. And here's why. Because what Jesus, the true king, asks of us first and foremost is faith. What Jesus, the true king, asks of us 
the characters in the story and you and me, first and foremost is faith. See, he's driving into what these characters in the story are trusting in at the very center of who they are. He is doing what seems to be ridiculous to us looking at the story because he wants to accomplish something much, much more significant than just the healing of this little girl. He wants to drive Jarius and the woman to this place of faith. Now, faith is believing what God has said despite what you might see. This is what the author of Hebrews 11 is, uh, t- is trying to drive at with us. That faith is believing what God has said despite what you might see. It's what Jesus is asking of the characters in the story. I'm going to ask you to do what seems to be ridiculous in order to give you something better. I'm going to ask of you what seems to be nonsensical in order to produce this belief or this trust in what I've said instead of what you see. Now think about it. The woman's already been healed, and Jesus slows down to have a conversation. Why? Because he wants her to understand this, that what she needs more than even the healing is to trust in Jesus, to be a person of faith. He looks at Jairus. Can you imagine being in Jairus' situation? When Jesus looks at you and says, hey, we just got this terrible news. Your daughter is dead. Do not fear, only believe. If I was Jairus, I'd be like, hold, 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 hold up. You let this lady come in fear and trembling in secret, and you healed her, and you're going to have the audacity to look at me who came to you in humility, asking you to come and heal my daughter. And now that she's, you're going to ask me to believe the impossible? You let her come fearful, full of anxiety, but me? You want me to believe something that's totally crazy and impossible? It would be like asking someone, hey, would you paddle in a canoe across the Atlantic Ocean, right? That's the kind of thing going on with Jairus. But why? Because Jesus wants Jairus to believe what Jesus says more than what his circumstances would dictate. Here's the way Tim Keller explains it. He says, if you go to Jesus, he may ask you for far more than you originally planned to give, but he can give you infinitely more than you dared to ask or think. That's what's going on in this passage. Jesus with the woman is asking her for more. She came full of anxiety and fear, afraid to be publicly embarrassed by having to describe her condition. And what Jesus asked for her to do is the very thing she is afraid to do. And she doesn't. She doesn't do it confidently. She doesn't do it boldly. But she does it even in fear and trembling. Jesus asked for more of Jairus. Jairus came just thinking that if he could get Jesus to his house, his daughter would be healed. And Jesus says, no, no, I'm not going to ask you to trust me for a healing. I'm going to ask you to trust me for a resurrection. I'm going to ask of you far more than what you plan to give when you came to see me today. But do you see the beauty of this is that Jesus gives them far more than they ever could have asked for. Can you imagine being this woman? Having this healing happen in your life, but knowing that it all happened in the secretive way? 
And Jesus says, identify yourself. Why? Because he wants her to hear what he has to say to her. And he says, daughter. It's a term of affection. Now, can you imagine, right, the power of being a woman who hasn't been able to be in a crowd, who hasn't been able to go to worship, who's been isolated because of your medical attention, hearing this famous rabbi Jesus affectionately call you? She needed that. And she needs him to say, it's your faith that made you well. She needed that sort of clarity from Jesus. It's not a superstition. It's not because I have a magic cloak or garment. Jesus is saying, I want you to know that your trust in me is the very thing that healed you. And then he says, I love this, go in peace. You don't have to go home worried that you did this the wrong way. You don't have to go home guilty that perhaps you took advantage of me by coming up behind me in secret. You don't have to go home worried about being in isolation anymore. You don't have to go home overcome with anxiety because of your condition. You can go home in peace. Now, isn't that infinitely more than what she came to get? She came for healing. What she got was validation. An amazing word from Jesus. I love you. Your faith is admirable, and I've responded to it. Now you can go in peace. Fear and anxiety and worry do not have to mark your life anymore, even though they have for the past 12 years. And then with Jairus, he gets more than he bargained for too. See, Jairus thought he was coming for healing, but what he gets is a resurrection. He thought he was coming for an exchange, that Jesus would help him out. Instead, what he gets is a personal experience in his own house with Jesus grabbing his own daughter by the hand and bringing her back to life. Can you imagine being Jairus and hearing the report a couple years from this day down the road at the end of the book of Mark that Jesus himself has resurrected from the dead? Just imagine the sort of confidence that you would have in Jesus' own resurrection and its own implications for your life if you had already seen Jesus raise somebody from the dead, your own daughter, firsthand. So here is Jesus then giving Jairus even more than what he asked for, even more than what he even knows he's going to need at this moment. And maybe today you're like, Brandon, that's a great story, and I get it but I just don't know if I have more to give. If Jesus is going to ask for more from me in this moment, more of my faith, I'm just not sure I have more. Here's the good news. The good news about this story is the original act of faith comes from two people who are radically different. The woman, like many of you here, has very little to give. Right? She doesn't come boldly. Jarius pushes his way through the crowd. She doesn't do that. Jarius comes and bows down at his feet, some big act showing his humility. She doesn't do that. She sneaks up from behind. Even when Jesus calls her to identify herself, the scripture says she comes in fear and tremble. Here's the great news about Christian faith. The power of faith is not in the amount you have, but in the object of your faith. Do you remember last week I told you guys a story about getting on an airplane in the middle of a typhoon? 
right? You remember that story? I told you last week, get on an airplane in the middle of a typhoon. It's kind of a crazy story. Kristen does not want to get on the airplane. I do want to get on the airplane. She got on the airplane in fear and trembling. I got on the airplane thinking we cannot get stuck in Bangkok, Thailand. Let's go, right? Like I'm very practical minded, like get on the plane. She's full of fear and anxiety, which is the normal response of a normal person. Who, who in that scenario placed their faith in the pilot of the plane to navigate them through a typhoon? Both of us, and both of us received the same result when we stepped off the plane safely in Hong Kong. Safety. And that is what we as believers in Jesus say together around faith. It's not the amount you have. You're not trying to muster up more. It's the object, who Jesus is. Romans chapter 5. Paul just unloads a bombshell. But before we get there, you got to understand something. He spent Romans chapter 3 and Romans chapter 4 trying to show or make the argument that faith is all, has always been the means by which people are put in a right relationship with God, right? So there's a couple of examples. We go all the way back to the garden, right? Adam and Eve at the garden, what does God ask them to do? Obey for sure, but what is it at the heart? Will you believe what I've told you about this fruit or not? Your obedience is going to flow from faith. Romans 3 and 4, uh, Paul unpacks Abraham. And he says, Abraham believed God, trusted in God, was a person of faith, and then it was credit to him righteousness. All right? So here's this big story. Paul saying, everybody for all time who's come before God and had a right relationship with God did not come because of their own obedience, but came simply as people of faith. People believing that God was going to make good on what he said despite what they could see. Then in Romans chapter 5, here's what he says about us. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what he says. You have peace. You don't have to be worried about your past. You don't have to have guilt over decisions that you've made before. You, You don't have to live in isolation or fear but you have peace, and you have peace with God himself through one means and one means only, that you, just like Jairus and just like the woman in the story, believe what God said about his son Jesus Christ and trusted that. So, no matter how you came in today, no matter if you're feeling full of fear or anxiety, No matter if you're overwhelmed by your current situation, the truth of the gospel is because of what Jesus has done for you in your place, you have peace with God. It's not dependent on the amount of faith you have, dependent on the object of your faith, Jesus. Which puts us to this moment right now. For many of us here, in person or watching online. Because I imagine there's a variety of people in the room asking, well, what does this mean for me that what Jesus wants is faith? Well, for some of us, we are full of fear and anxiety. We are. COVID has about destroyed us. We just can't handle all of the unknown and the uncertainty 
the pressure that is created with our job or inside our family. Every decision feels like a massive decision. And if that's you, the good news for you is from this story, what Jesus asks for you is just faith. Even if it comes with fear and trembling, that you could come before him, trusting him, believing what he said, despite what's going on around you. Now, for some of us here, that's not us at all. We got big, bold personalities, and we own every room that we walk into, and we've never been afraid of COVID, and, and we've never been afraid of what, I just big personalities. If that's you today, let me remind you, faith is not a personality trait. That's not necessarily a demonstration of faith. Just because you got your fear is greater than faith shirt on and you're advertising that on social media, all these people need to just get it together and act in faith. If that's your personality, that might not be faith. That's, that's Jerry's personality. He's a leader. He walks straight through the crowd, right up to Jesus. And Jesus asked him for more. And so I wonder for some of us today who are just more bold in our personality if Jesus is asking you for more. Not a personality trait of boldness, but an actual faith. Will you trust a resurrection? Will you do something that is uncomfortable for you? Man, it's easy to look down our nose at other people who are struggling with anxiety and fear and think, oh, I'm good because I don't experience that. The truth is maybe Jesus is saying, how about a resurrection? You believe in a resurrection? We're going to do this? How about you give some time over the next year from your job to go overseas? How about you give more than you ever thought you were called to give? Because just being a person with the bold personality does not necessarily demonstrate faith. Trusting in Jesus and what he said at the very heart of who you are. Responding in faith when he asks you for more. That's what we're talking about. Now, maybe some of us then are here, somewhere caught in the middle, but we're just not happy with God's timeline. Maybe we're like, hey, man, uh, Jesus, here's the deal. The way you triage this situation in my life is lame. And you seem to be prioritizing everybody else's little emergency over my entire life crisis. And if that's you, let me just remind you today. Jesus' triage is about the condition of your heart, not often your external circumstances. God works in his own timing, in his own ways. It is often baffling to us. But I promise what he's trying to draw out of you is faith. Will you believe what God has said despite the way things seem to appear? And then maybe for all of us, no matter what camp we're in, we're displeased at God's timeline. We're full of anxiety and fear. We've been looking down at everybody because we're just naturally more bold. I just love this. For all of us today, the message, I think, is just go in peace. You have no reason to fear or worry about where you stand in your relationship with God. You have no reason to be overcome with guilt today because of what you did this past week. If you have trusted in Jesus, you can leave here with this at the forefront of your mind. Go in peace. 
Because what you and I are trusting in is not our own actions, not our own goodness, not our own morality, not our own obedience, but what you and I are trusting in is the same thing that everyone who has ever known God has been trusting in for all time. That God is going to do what he said he is going to do, despite the way things seem. So here's the way we're going to end. I'm just going to pray for you. And I'm going to ask you in these moments to be bold. So I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to ask you to respond by when I address maybe something that is at the very heart of who you are, you would just raise your hand. Here's what I can't promise you. I can't promise you people aren't going to peek. Because every time a pastor says, everybody head, bow their heads and close their eyes, somebody peeks. I can't promise you that, all right? But I can promise you, I can promise you, remember from the story Jesus asked for more than you thought you'd have to give. It's going to be a little bit more maybe today than you thought you're going to have to give coming to church, all right? And I just want to pray for you uh, together, just our church together, all right? So let's, let's pray. Uh, first, if maybe you're in that first category, you just feel overwhelmed with fear and anxiety by something going on in your life in this very moment, would you, would you just maybe just raise your hand and I would just love just to pray for you. Uh, Father, uh, for these people in our congregation whom I dearly love, would you in this moment call them, remind them of gospel truth? Father, would they know that the object of their faith, Jesus, is more important than the amount? Could you give them the strength to keep coming to you even when they're full of anxiety and fear? the strength to continue to trust you even when things don't look like they're heading in the right direction. Father, could you remind them in this very moment that while they might not have peace in a variety of relationships or variety of situations in their life, they do have peace with you. And they can walk in confidence knowing that you have brought them peace. Maybe for some of us today, if you just kind of have a naturally bold personality and you just want to raise your hand, just maybe a confession today. This would be me. I have a tendency to look down on people who just don't have the same sort of boldness that I do, but realizing that it's not always faith. Maybe you want to just raise your hand. Father, for these brothers and sisters in here whom I identify with, just not normally people who are worried or concerned or full of anxiety, uh, Father, could we be a people of faith? Realizing that our personality traits are not faith, that our makeup is not faith, but it's believing what you've said. And God, could you give us that sort of boldness when you call us to respond? Could you give us the sort of boldness we need to be people of faith? And then today, maybe if you're just disappointed, you just think, man, God messed up the timeline he didn't triage my situation correctly. I'm just really disappointed. Could you just raise your hand? I just love an opportunity to pray for you. Thanks. Yeah. Father, so many of us walk through times of disappointment when things don't work out the way we thought. It can seem maddening to try to figure out what you're doing behind the scenes. And Father, could you fill these men and women just with a confidence, the confidence that J Jairus models in this story for us, 
to trust you when things seem impossible, to continue to follow you when it doesn't make sense? Could you remind these dear folks at our church that they have more in you, more in following you, than they would by focusing on their circumstances or disappointment. God, so could you by your spirit just fill them with a faith, a faith that knows and trusts that you work for our good even when it doesn't seem like it. And then, Jesus, finally today, we just ask that you would draw some men and women to yourself here or online who just need peace with you, tired of worrying, tired of guilt, tired of being overwhelmed. And God, could you just draw them and say, hey, here's the deal. If you just come and place your faith in Jesus and Jesus alone to save you, you will be saved. You will be put in a right relationship with God. God, we just ask that you would do that work. Amen.